If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, in the latest of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcast series, we're covering Arthurian myths and history with two experts, Professors Ronald Hutton and Ad Putter. Putting your questions to them is our content director, Dr. David Musgrove. Today, we have another in our Everything You Want to Know podcast series, where the questions are submitted by yourselves and combined with the most popular internet search engine queries on the subject. Our topic today is Arthurian history and legends. We have not one, but two experts to help us through the subject, both professors at the University of Bristol, Ronald Hutton and Ad Putter. Ronald Hutton is professor of history there and a leading expert on many topics, including folklore, ancient and medieval paganism and magic. He's written many books and articles, including the opening chapter on Arthurian history in a volume entitled The Cambridge Companion to the Arthurian Legend, which was co-edited by our fellow expert today, Ad Putter, who is professor of medieval English literature and an authority on Arthurian literature and medieval romance with a particular interest in the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm going to put the first few questions to Professor Hutton and the latter batch to Professor Putter before finishing with some general questions for both of them. So let's see how it goes. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, So the first question uh, is to you, Ronald, and it's the most popular internet search queries about this topic. Was King Arthur a real person and a sort of of subsidiary one, when was King Arthur born, which I guess follows from the, the first question. So uh, I wonder if you have a, a concise answer to that. The answer to the first question, which is the reason why the whole subject is so tantalising, is we have no real idea. He might never have existed. He might be one of the most important historical characters in the early medieval history of this island. When was he born? Well, if he did exist, it was somewhere in the period between 450 and 540 of the Christian era, probably in the middle or the latter half of that time, i.e. somewhere 490 to 540. We don't know how long he lived. We don't know where he was. But if he was around, it was almost certainly then. 
Okay. So that sets the scene for us nicely. Uh, another popular internet search engine question is, what are the first documentary sources that talk about King Arthur? That's easier to answer. It really boils down to four pages in a manuscript in the British Library called Harleian 3859. And it's two different documents The earlier and the most important is a general history of the Welsh people, the Historia Britonum, which has the first clearly datable mention of Arthur. It's 830 AD, and it's a history written in North Wales by a good scholar, and the passage is a list of battles in which King Arthur or maybe the general Arthur, was the leader. And it provides information about how he killed 960 people, apparently single-handed, at Mount Baden. And at another battle at Castle Gwynion, he carried the Virgin Mary's image on his shield or his shoulders. And the second of the earliest sources is about 100 years later than the Historia Britonum. It's the Annales Cambriae, it's the Cambrian Chronicles, which is from, or are from West Wales in the 950s. And it's the first attempt to set Arthur in an actual chronology. And there are two dates that refer to him. 516, the Battle of Mount Baden, and it describes Arthur carrying the image of the Virgin Mary at that battle and winning it. And then 537, the Battle of Camlan, where Arthur and Medrort perished. This is the first mention of the character who later becomes Mordred, now called Medrort in the story. We aren't told, however, if he was Arthur's enemy or if they're on the same side, but that is the only mention we have in the early sources of that particular battle, the fatal Battle of Camlan, or Arthur's death. Nothing else is provably earlier than those. There are various bits of poetry that might be. There's a list of wonders of Britain that mentions Arthur that might be, but we're not sure. Okay, and that's, uh, I suppose that is part of the problem. There are lots of mites and maybes about this topic, aren't there? So you've talked about the historical evidence there. Another popular uh, internet search query is, is there any good archaeological evidence for King Arthur? So again, Ronald, is there, is there, is there anything you can say about that? Strictly speaking, there isn't any archaeological evidence for King Arthur at all. In other words, there's absolutely nothing that's been dug up that can be firmly linked to Arthur or is any kind of text that mentions him, which is one good reason why we can't say for sure that he ever existed. But there is, on the other hand, a vast amount of excellent archaeological evidence for the people and the culture in which Arthur would have lived, in other words, for the native British in the period between around 450 and 550. And we have more of that every decade but as yet, Arthur himself still escapes us amid it. Okay. Um, and you've, you've sort of set the scene of, of the period in which uh, this Arthur may have existed. Uh, and as you said, that's, uh, that's in, the, in sort of the post-Roman period. And we've got a question here from Todd Giaba Patton on Facebook, who asks, how is Arthurian history interweaved with the withdrawal of Roman legions from Britain? If there is an Arthurian history at all, then the withdrawal of the Roman legions from Britain really kicks it off. Because until the Romans pull out round about 410, we have a history of Britain. In other words, we have coinage, we have rulers of the empire whom we can identify. We occasionally hear of actual events in Britain connected to real people. But as soon as the Romans leave, that's it. There's no more coinage. There's no more contemporary history. And we enter what can still be called, for about a couple of hundred years, the Dark Ages, in which we really don't know politically what is going on. And that's why the contrast is so vivid this very day between the Roman period and that which a lot of people would like to call the Arthurian. One of them is firmly historical. The other exists almost outside history. Okay. 
And perhaps following on from that answer slightly is a, a question from Harrison Porter, who contacted us on Twitter, um, whose question is, one thing I've always wondered about is, was the Anglo-Saxon expansion as violent as depicted in Arthurian legends? So Harrison's talking about uh, uh, the, these, these Germanic peoples who, uh, who are fought or considered by some to have come in uh, and, uh, and occupied something of a vacuum uh, in, the, uh, in the aftermath of the, of the Romano-British period. So uh, Ronald, what's, what's your take on that? That's a really interesting question, Harrison. It's now an enormous and unresolved debate among experts in the post-Roman early medieval period. The problem is the dramatic contrast between the literary evidence and the archaeological. In the literary evidence, there is absolute unanimity among the sources on both sides, the native British and the Anglo-Saxon, that the Anglo-Saxon occupation was an extremely violent and traumatic event or series of events with massacres, the storming of fortresses, and the widespread displacement of people. And the linguistic evidence also backs that up because large areas of uh, the island change quite rapidly from speaking a form of Welsh or the Roman Latin to speaking English, with very few loan words in English from the Welsh, suggesting the two people simply don't mix. But in archaeology, there's very little trace of violence, and farming systems, field systems, estate boundaries seem to carry on very much unaltered from one age to the next. And so at present, most archaeologists are arguing for a slow and peaceful occupation by limited numbers of Anglo-Saxon incomers. And the historians are still faced with texts that tell them the exact opposite. So we're in a really interesting situation of an unresolved problem at the moment. And as yet, I can't see a way out of it. Um, thank you for that. And there's, um, uh, for those who are, who are interested, we had a, a very interesting discussion on the podcast a little while ago with uh, Professor Susan Westhuizen uh, looking at that, uh, some of those uh, new angles of research there. Um, moving on, and your answer to this is, is probably going to be not much from what you've said so far, but uh, Paul Day on Facebook asked, what, if any, of the Arthurian story can we be fairly certain of as fact? Just one thing, and that's the Battle of Mount Baden, which is recorded in both of our earliest texts as one of Arthur's greatest victories. We know that that battle actually did happen because of a near-contemporary text, uh, the list of complaints against current kings of the British by a man called Gildas, which mentions the battle, and mentions the battle because it anchors the time at which Gildas himself was born. So this battle is a historic fact. The real problem is that we're still not certain if there was a historical author actually linked to it and he won it. We, we haven't yet found a credible contender to win it instead of Arthur, but it's the one point at which history and the early Arthurian story connect. Okay. Uh, now, D Withers on Twitter has a sort of a few questions, a multi-part question, but basically trying to understand who the original Arthur uh, is or may have been. So he asks, why is he called Arthur? Is he the first Arthur? Who was he based on? Was it a British legend originally or a French one? And when were the first stories likely to have been shared? So there's quite a few points there. Um, uh, if you want to take them one by one, or perhaps you feel you've already answered a couple of them. Those are new questions, essentially. Uh, he's not the first Arthur, and uh, he was named after Arthur after previous Arthurs. It's uh, a Welsh version of the Roman name Artorius, which is a not very common but a bona fide, bona fide and well-recorded Roman name with some quite illustrious Roman commanders, one in particular, having that name. So he's in a tradition. 
Was it a British legend originally or a French one? It was a British one. There's no doubt whatsoever that the Welsh sources for Arthur or the sources produced by people who are becoming the Welsh are the earliest that we have, and rightly so because they refer to events concerning that particular people, and the French picked up the story much later. And when were the first stories likely to have been shared All we can say is sometime before 8.30, which is the first solid date we have for an Arthurian tradition. But whether that's 100 years before or 300 years before, we aren't exactly sure. Okay, thank you. And we may come on to to the French and perhaps even the specifically the Breton fascination with uh, with Arthur and the Arthurian stories a bit later in this discussion. Uh, last one for you, Ronald, from Joe Hayhurst on Twitter, who uh, who makes the point that there are clearly two Arthurs: the legendary one who fought the Saxons and the made up one from Camelot. And he wants to know why are they still incorrectly conflated by most people, uh, and specifically why is there not more knowledge of the first one? So um, uh, what's, what's your opinion on, on that, Ronald? We can give a clear answer to that. Uh, they're still conflated by most people because the developed high medieval legend, the legend of the Arthur of Camelot, contains the earlier Arthur inside itself. In other words, it's uh, a ramping up, uh, a modernization in medieval terms of an earlier character whom everybody knows is supposed to be an earlier character. So the later Arthur is the early Arthur in a different kind of fancy dress. As for why isn't there more knowledge of the first Arthur? Well, the answer is that there is a huge body of legends surrounding the later medieval Arthur which contains within it some of the best and best-known stories in medieval literature. Compared with that, what we have of the earlier Arthur is a bare list of the names of 12 battles with two short anecdotes and then just two dates, so we really have much less to go on. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ronald, for that. We'll come back to you um, towards the end of the conversation, if that's okay. We'll now move on, move on to uh, Professor Ad Putter to t- get a bit more of the uh, sort of the uh, literary uh, historical uh, perspective on things. And the next question for you, Ad, is a, is a popular Google search query: Why? When did stories about King Arthur become popular? And a sort of a associated one: How popular were those stories in the Middle Ages? These were the stories were hugely popular, and they became popular in the 12th century. Uh, the two big names uh, that I should mention are Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was a, a Latin uh, writing in Latin. He was a schoolmaster in Oxford, and he wrote a hugely influential history of the kings of Britain, in which he he gave a very prominent part to King Arthur. Uh, and that book became hugely influential, and everyone read it. Then there is the inventor of Arthurian romance. Uh, and these are the stories of the knights of the round table riding out on adventure. And the, the inventor of that is a Frenchman. Uh, Chrétien de Troyes is his name. He was from the Champagne area in France. Uh, and his romances, again, were hugely influential. I think these two writers helped to popularize the Arthurian story. Uh, though it might be mentioned that there was a, a lively oral tradition too of stories being told about King Arthur. Okay, and then moving on from that, um, uh, a lot of interest uh, on the internet in uh, in this question: When did the idea of the Round Table and Camelot appear? So uh, that's taking us into into these into these romance stories uh, more specifically, I guess. So what's what's the uh, what's the answer to that, Ad? So the answer is that. Uh, it's not in the earliest chronicle there that I've mentioned, uh, the, the chronicle by Geoffrey of Monmouth. It appears, the round table appears for the first time in a, a French translation of that chronicle by a writer called Was, who was from Jersey. And he says that Arthur founded a round table to uh, avoid problems uh, and quarrels about precedence, who could sit in the seat of honour. Now, if you have a round table, everyone is equal. So uh, uh, we find it first in Was, 
um, th then later writers elaborate on, on the idea. There is a, an English translation of Was uh, by a, a writer called Lachemann, who tells us that the round table was built by a, a Cornish carpenter and could seat more than 1,600 men. Uh, later traditions then ascribe the invention to Merlin. So it keeps on changing the round table, and, but uh, it first appears in, in Was. And, uh, and Camelot, where's, when, when does that start to um, appear in the stories? Well, Camelot is later still. Uh, you, the first mention of Camelot is in uh, one of Chrétien de Troyes' romances. I've mentioned him as the first, as the inventor of Arthurian romance. And Camelot appears in one of his romances, uh, the romance of the, uh, of the Knight of the Cart, which is about Lancelot. Uh, though it is not in all the manuscripts, so it is quite possibly a later uh, scribal edition. Um, I think it becomes more prominent in the 13th century uh, French prose romances that, where Camelot really becomes the centre of the Arthurian universe. Right, the next question is uh, another search engine one uh, about King Arthur's Queen. Who was King Arthur's Queen and when does she appear in the stories? So King Arthur's queen was Guinevere. Uh, and Guinevere has a very long pedigree. I think Guinevere is really associated with, with King Arthur uh, in, that, uh, in that earliest fully developed chronicle I mentioned uh, by Geoffrey of Monmouth, where Guinevere is the daughter of a, of a Roman family and has been brought up in the household of the Duke of Cornwall. Uh, and then Geoffrey of Monmouth goes on to, to tell that... Uh, she takes up with the traitor Mordred uh, when Arthur is fighting abroad. So uh, it ha Quinevere has quite a long, a long pedigree in Arthurian literature. Okay, and then another big figure in the, in the Arthurian pantheon is Lancelot. And again, uh, uh, search engine uh, queries uh, focus on him. When does Lancelot appear in those stories? What's his role, and uh, and quite specifically, was he invented by Christian uh, de Troyes, as you've mentioned earlier? So Lancelot first appears in the Romance of the Knight of the Cart, written by Christian de Troyes. So that will be about eleven seventy-five. Uh, he has a very important role there. He is the lover of the Queen Guinevere. So Christian de Troyes, as far as we know, is, is the inventor of of this love triangle involving King Arthur. Uh, Queen Guinevere, uh, and then Lancelot. Uh, there does, it does appear that there was a, another tradition of Lancelot where he's just uh, an, uh, one of King Arthur's knights, uh, because we have a 13th century romance by a German writer, uh, Ulrich, von, uh, Ulrich von Satzenhofen, and in this romance he, he is just, uh, he, he doesn't have an affair with Guinevere at all. So, so why? What is the point of the love triangle idea? How does that fit in with medieval romance and literature? The reason why this love element is so important is that the essence of of romances is that it try to reconcile an interest in uh, martial prowess uh, with an interest in in a kind of romantic element. And how do you combine those two? Well, one way in which you can combine the two is by suggesting that knights become braver if they're inspired by the love of ladies. And that really is how Lancelot takes off, because it's, it's Lancelot's love for the queen uh, that, that leads him to do these marvellous deeds ascribed to him in the romances. Okay, right. Another um, very popular internet search uh, question is about the Holy Grail. What does the Holy Grail have to do with the Knights of the Round Table? It depends on which romance you read. In the first romance that mentions the Grail, again, it's the wonderful writer Chrétien de Troyes, the Grail is simply a serving platter, which is what the word originally meant. It's, it's a flat dish, which uh, Chrétien later reveals in that romance contains uh, the Eucharistic wafer, those religious associations of the grail get taken up and developed by later writers. So in later Arthurian literature, it is usually described as, as the cup with which Joseph of Arimathea, 
one of Christ's disciples, collected the blood of Christ after he'd been crucified. And it becomes, in 13th century Arthurian prose romances, a kind of mystical object that you, that, that you, that you try and find in a search for perfection. And uh, I think it's really important in Arthurian romance because it really signals a shift towards a more spiritual uh, a spiritual drive uh, in which being a knight is not just about being uh, being brave uh, and and powerful or being courtly it's also becomes uh, a matter of being spiritually pure and sometimes chaste so you have a new generation of knights who become associated with the grail and who achieve the quest of the holy grail and that quest of the holy grail i mentioned this prose romance in which the grail is really prominent is an early 13th century uh, uh, invention uh, from France. Okay, so we're seeing a, quite a different spin on the stories as we as we move through the period, and from the 13th century, it's it's taking on these more religious uh, aspects. That's right. Okay, um, a, a very nice question from uh, D Withers again on Twitter, um, uh, who, who asks, "Who was the best knight by the end of the stories?" And, and he um, uh, then goes on to say, "Did every round table knight blot their copybook?" So, uh, yeah. so, so one for you to opine on there, Ad. Yeah, oh, that's a nice question, and that's a good way of putting it because I think that is indeed what happens. I think I think the the situation is that what is a hero for one generation is not a hero. Uh, for for the generation coming after that. Uh, so what tends to happen as you go through literary history is that uh, once famous heroes uh, undergo a process that we call epic degeneration, they, 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 they decline. And this you see throughout Arthurian literature. Um, for instance, uh, Gawain, who we might think of as one of the great knights, and is certainly... Uh, 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 an exemplar of heroism in the earliest romances by Chrétien de Troyes becomes in the later romances something of a womanizer and a traitor. It's the same with Lancelot. I've mentioned Lancelot as being one of the great knights, being driven to greatness by love of the queen. But in the quest of the Holy Grail, he's the person who cannot achieve the Grail quest and he, he is eclipsed by his son, who is spiritually pure. So uh, I, I would say maybe Galahad, the knight I just mentioned, is the only knight in the Arthurian legend who cannot be said to decline in any way because uh, he is taken up to heaven, and that's the end of him. Okay. And do, do you think it's fair to say that Arthur himself is a victim of epic degeneration uh, during the course of these stories? Yes, he is. Uh, I, I think you could perfectly well say that. In the chronicle tradition, he is uh, the great conquering king. Uh, and what you see in the later romances is that his role is much more passive. Uh, and in Chrétien's late and unfinished romance, which is the story of the Grail, uh, Arthur is even shown as nodding off. Uh, uh, he falls asleep uh, as, he, as, he, as he presides over the round table. Um. Now, uh, you mentioned Gawain uh, just then in your in your previous answer, and this is a topic that you're um, you're particularly interested in. You've written quite a lot on, and it's one of the sort of the stranger aspects of the Arthurian um, pantheon, I guess, and um, one of the one, harder ones to understand, in my view. What what is the tale of Gawain and the Green Knight all about, and why is it in the stories? That again is is something that people type in a lot into into Google. Yeah, so the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is uh, in English story there from about 1380, written by a poet from Cheshire, tells the story of King Arthur who holds court in Camelot. Uh, and as he waits for an adventure to arrive, a green knight uh, comes walking in. This is not just a green knight because he's got green armour on. This man's green all over and he's of a huge size. And he offers a challenge to King Arthur's court of a very unusual kind. He says, anyone of you can chop my head off uh, on condition that in a year's time he comes to my place and then I'll chop his head off. And in that romance, it's Gawain who, who volunteers and uh, takes on this challenge and then, um, uh, and then has various adventures on his way to the Green Knight, facing his beheading. A hugely popular story, 
uh, with modern audiences. It wasn't popular at the time. And I'm very pleased to, to, to see that we will soon have a new film uh, called The Green Knight uh, on this subject. And I hope it follows the story very faithfully, but I doubt it. Uh, the story it will always be better than any modern film based on it. And, and what, I mean, just the, the, the very oddness of the beheading element is, is very strange. What do you make of it? What's, what's, what's the underlying point there? Why, why would they be so interested in this beheading business? One of the fascinating things about the beheading challenge is very different, uh, very different from challenges of other sorts. It, it's, not a it's not a challenge, if you like, of brute strength. Uh, it is actually a challenge of submitting to something passively. You have to sit there and be brave enough for someone else to have uh, to have a go at your head. So it, I, I think one of the wonderful things about the, the beheading game is, is that it, it, it poses a, a challenge of a very different sort from the usual, if you like, chivalric martial challenges. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So the first half of the Tudor period is really a time when the medieval Arthurian legend has its last brilliant efflorescence before largely going to sleep for a couple of hundred of years. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Bai. It's Wonder Water. What makes Bai so great? It's simple. From Raspberry Lemon Lime by Sydney Sweeney to Zambia Bing Cherry and Palavo Pineapple Mango, Bai has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. So for flavorful hydration, choose Bai. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Bai and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbai.com. Okay, and uh, the the one character in the stories who we haven't talked about yet is uh, is subject to a question from Sylvia Barbara on Twitter, um, who asked, "Was Merlin originally part of the Arthurian legends?" Um, so um, I get that's that's for you again, I think, Ad. Well, in the earliest fully developed chronicle by Geoffrey of Monmouth, Merlin does have a big part already. Although I think it's important to say that Merlin isn't in that story. Uh, directly associated with Arthur. He's associated with uh, a king who rules Britain uh, two generations before King Arthur. It's a king called Vortigern. And what Geoffrey of Monmouth says is that Merlin makes various prophecies uh, to, to Vortigern. Um, amongst others, he, he prophesies that the great boar of Cornwall will come and will conquer Rome. So that is probably an allusion to King Arthur. He also says about King Arthur that King Arthur's death will be doubtful. So that he's associated indirectly, I, I would say, uh, with King Arthur. What happens in Arthurian literature as it develops is that writers must have thought that these were two great people, We've got King Arthur on the one hand, we've got Merlin on the other hand. Why not bring these two together? So what you see happening first, first in, the, in the early 13th century is that Merlin becomes King Arthur's counsellor. 
uh, I suppose the, the, the most latest, uh, the latest version of that would be something like the, the Merlin episodes that we've seen on the BBC more recently, where they are in fact contemporaries. So as Arthurian literature develops, they, they, are, they, they are more more and more closely associated. Okay, and just on that one, Ronald, you're a, you're an expert in uh, in in magic and and things like that. You've studied it a lot. Does do does does the the place of Merlin and the things he gets up to does that inform us much about attitudes to to magic uh, in this period? Yes, because the image of Merlin changes constantly. There is no doubt that medieval scholars had a real problem with Merlin, because on the one hand, officially, magic is not something which respectable people do. There's no such thing as a respectable wizard. All magic, that is, a series of apparently superhuman acts carried out with supernatural power by human beings, must be the work of the devil because otherwise the person would be a saint and the act would be a miracle empowered by God. But Merlin is clearly regarded as a good thing by the Arthurian tradition. And so medieval authors bent themselves and the story into all sorts of shapes, trying to keep Merlin respectable. Okay. And I don't know if either of you have watched the, the Netflix TV series Cursed at the moment, but that, uh, that sort of seems to be building on that sort of thing with, uh, with uh, Merlin being, uh, being, being the sort of the, the devil figure there. So, so maybe they've been uh, reading your books, Ronald. Um, right. Um, a question from Facebook from Michelle Ruse. This is for, for both of you, I think. So how significant was Glastonbury tour in Arthurian legend and why was this? So, um, Ad, do you want to, do you want to, give a, a first answer to that and then Ronald can chip in with anything else he wants to add? Yeah, I, I, I might just mention that Glastonbury was associated with the place Avalon. Av- Avalon is the place to which Arthur is carried after he has been mortally wounded, according to the chronicle tradition. Uh, and that island uh, is associated with Avalon because actually, historically speaking, Glastonbury was an island. What are now the Somerset levels really was 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 these 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 were wetlands. So that's one strand. Um, the other strand worth mentioning is is that of Joseph of Arimathea. I've mentioned him in connection with the Grail, uh, and uh, according to uh, late twelfth, early thirteenth century French sources, it was. It was Joseph of Arimathea who brought the Grail to England and particularly to Glastonbury. So those are two connections I would mention. Maybe Ronald has has more to add to this. I certainly have. Uh, The connection between Glastonbury and the Isle of Avalon is quite late. It doesn't begin till the 1190s and really get going until the 13th century. The position of Glastonbury Tor is really that it's the dramatic hill with the tower now of a medieval monastery on its summit, which dominates the Glastonbury Island. And it has an archaeological resonance here, in that in the 1960s, the top of the Torb was excavated by Philip Ratz, a great West Country archaeologist. And he found the remains of some flimsy buildings, shacks, that had been built on the top of the hill just around the time when Arthur might have been alive. That's around the year 500. But although the buildings were flimsy, the people who occupied them were very well off because they consumed a great deal of uh, wine imported from the Eastern Mediterranean and ate a great deal of beef. So this is a high-status crew of people. So we still wonder what it was. Could have been uh, a fortress, but there are no fortifications. Could have been a monastery with the wine being used for communion, but there's no easy source of water at the top of the hill. It all has to be brought up from the bottom for the monks to purify. Or it could have been a signal station, because from the top of the tor, you can see a string of fortresses occupied just around the same time, around the year 500 AD, that between them might have formed a very effective signalling station using bonfires, which could shoot a message within a 
few minutes from the borders of Dorset into South Wales. So any of those. The, the great thing is that the Tor is the place which has yielded the most convincing evidence to date of activity at Glastonbury in Arthur's time. There are now other places, but the Tor's got most of it. Has, has the Tor ever been uh, posed as a, as a candidate for um, Camelot itself? It's too small. You you can't get more than uh, a small bunch of people on top. And Camelot, however you visualise it, is a fortress. It's a royal residence. And there's no sign of fortifications on the hill. And there just isn't space to have even a rather small war band on the top. Um, and just a, a sort of a, a subsidiary question to our list then. So Camelot, um, there's lots of places being uh, being, being, being cited as possible uh, locations for it. Tintagel is probably the most famous, I guess. Um, uh, w- w- Ronald, what are, what are the main contenders for Camelot? Well, and, and if any of them, which is the most likely? I don't think Tintagel's really in there in the running because it's Arthur's birthplace in the legend rather than Arthur's residence. There are really two that stand out, neither of them really very strongly. One is uh, an Iron Age hill force in South Somerset called Cadbury Castle, which by the 16th century was regarded locally as having been Camelot. When it was excavated in a very high-profile dig in the 1960s, evidence was found of occupation there in uh, what should have been the Arthurian period on a large scale and by people of high status. So it checks out as a genuine royal or princely site of the right age, but we still can't prove that it's anything to do with Arthur. The other contender is uh, Camulodunum, which is the Roman name for Colchester. Now, the name Camelot, as Ada said, was invented by the French, Camelot, and it's possible that uh, the French romance is concerned, probably Chrétien, had a knowledge of the Roman name for Colchester and the Camulodunum became Camelot. And this is quite attractive because Colchester was a very impressive Roman city. It's still got a superb series of chunks of Roman wall with a superb gateway in one of them. So Colchester could make a very credible set of the walls of Camelot. But A, we have no proof that either Cadbury or Colchester was Camelot. And B, we have no proof that Arthur was associated with either. Okay. Um, Right. Uh, Another uh, search engine query. Uh, What happens to the Arthurian stories after the medieval period? Um, So again, Ad, uh, do do you have an answer to that one? Yeah, uh, it could be a very long answer, but I'll keep it short. It certainly didn't go away. Uh, The medieval stories uh, written in manuscript mostly in the medieval period, kept on going, and they they just made their way into print. Um, there is certainly uh, uh, some more scepticism about the historical Arthur that sets in with humanism. So there is a an Italian historian, Polydor Virgil, who rather debunks the excesses of the Arthurian legend and claims that uh, that's all nonsense. Uh, but... On the whole, actually, English writers just came to his defence. So the historical tradition lingered on in the early modern period, and the literature certainly lingered on. We have very important poems. Uh, We have, of course, The Fairy Queen uh, by Spencer, which mentions not King Arthur in this instance, because uh, he was writing under Queen Elizabeth, and it, it wouldn't be the right thing to do. But he certainly mentions Prince Arthur, the great Milton, Uh, was intending to write an epic about King Arthur. And for literature, my favourite period might be the Victorian uh, one, which is uh, where we see a great revival of interest in things medieval. And we have the wonderful Alfred Lord Tennyson writing The Idols of the King. We have great artists and painters uh, like Rossetti uh, doing wonderful paintings on the subject. Uh, and then, of course, now we, we, we have an age where we have all kinds of literature. We have parody, uh, parodic takes on King Arthur, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and so on. We have children's literature. I suppose we, T. H., the great T.H. White might be mentioned there. 
his great uh, Arthurian story, The Sword and the Stone, became a classic uh, and became the basis for the Walt Disney animation uh, by the same title, The Sword and the Stone. Uh, and I've already mentioned we're going to have more films about King Arthur to come. So the subject is is going strong. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They do keep coming, don't they? These uh, these TV and filmographic um, uh, depictions. Ronald, do you have anything to, uh, to to add to that one? Yeah, I have. Uh, the historical Arthur has always had a rocky ride. In other words, from the 12th century onwards, there have always been scholars who claimed he probably didn't exist. There's never been a period in which every accredited historian has accepted the reality of the historical Arthur. As for the legendary Arthur, uh, a little more than add, I'd emphasise the bumps along the way, that the story is immensely popular until the middle of the Tudor period. And then it starts to look a bit creaky and old-fashioned. The Renaissance doesn't like King Arthur. It regards him as uh, historically improbable and uh, thoroughly medieval. And the Age of Reason really didn't like him. So there's there's quite a, a, a sag in uh, Arthur's reputation and popularity and an interest in him during the 18th century. But as Ad has said, it's the Victorians who take him up in a big way. It's part of the general revival of an interest in fervent Christianity and the Middle Ages by the Victorians. And ever since then, he's never lost his popularity. It just keeps on snowballing. Why? Well, because you can have lots of different Arthurs. You can have the high medieval chivalric king and dress him up in all sorts of guises. Uh, John Berman's um, 1981 movie Excalibur is a classic example of a really successful recycling of this. Or you can make him a uh, gritty Dark Age hero uh, battling with a war band against uh, Saxon invaders. And he has the staff the great thing about the medieval legend is it's not just one sequence of stories about one ruler. He has this glittering entourage of really dramatically marked characters, female and male, who can all have their own separate stories. So he's such a brilliant resource for the modern imagination, being so incredibly versatile. It seems now as though he's unstoppable. Okay, and just um, going back into the into the Tudor attitudes to him, which uh, both of you mentioned there, uh, Sylvia Barber on Twitter uh, has a specific question. During the Tudor period, she says there was a prophecy that a queen shall be burned, and she asked, was this prophecy inspired by Arthurian legends? So, um, so, so Ronald, is uh, what, what's uh, what's your view on that? The prophecy itself probably wasn't inspired by the attempt to burn Guinevere, the Arthurian legends, because burning a queen is the penalty for uh, high treason. So Anne Boleyn, for example, and Catherine Howard, the two queens of Henry VIII whom Henry executed, could technically have been burned because they were put to death for treason. And it was a mark of mercy, if you can call it that, on the part of their soon-to-be departing husband, that he commuted the sentence to beheading. So after those experiences, it's not surprising that somebody thought it likely that sooner or later a queen would actually get burned. But the early Tudor period is a high tide of enthusiasm for Arthur, largely because of the greatest single work of the medieval Arthurian legend, which is Thomas Mallory's uh, Mort d'Arthur. It gets printed quite early, and it's a bestseller. Uh, at the highest royal level, uh, King Henry VII, the first Tudor, names his son and heir, his eldest son, Arthur, uh, we would have had a definite historic King Arthur if the poor boy hadn't died as a teenager. And Henry VIII has his own portrait painted on what he thought was the actual round table of King Arthur, a medieval fake at Winchester Castle. So the first half of the Tudor period is really a time when the medieval Arthurian legend has its last brilliant efflorescence before largely going to sleep for a couple of hundred of years. 
a fascinating counterfactual to imagine what uh, whether whether Prince Arthur would have been able to live up to his namesake had he uh, survived, wouldn't it? Um, Ad, do you have any anything further to us that we haven't uh, really talked about Mallory much um, uh, in this conversation? So I don't know if you want to throw anything else in there. Uh, yeah, the thing to add, I think there is a an early 16th century source that attributes a prophecy that the Queen shall be burnt to Merlin. Uh, but the thing about Merlin's prophecies, uh, they're hopelessly vague. Uh, I, I did go back, prompted by this question, I did go back uh, to read them. But the sort of stuff they say would be something like, oh, then a dragon from the east will come and will, uh, and the mountains will tremble. They could mean anything and they could mean nothing. Right. So super quickly, the last two, um, we've got one, the, the internet query, how did King Arthur die and where was he buried? Um, so, Ronald, I don't know if you, uh, if you can uh, give us chapter and verse on that. Well, everyone agrees whether they believe in a historical Arthur or a legendary one, that the crucial battle is Arthur's last one, which is Camlan. Uh, in the Cambrian Annals, it says uh, that Arthur died in battle at Camlan, either fighting alongside or fighting against a character called Madraut. It doesn't say where he was buried. And the memory of this fatal battle runs right through all the rest of the Arthurian legend, except later it's absolutely certain that Arthur's enemy at the battle is Mordred, and that Mordred was formerly one of his courtiers, and that he's Arthur's nephew or Arthur's son, and has turned against him. Whether Arthur actually dies or not in the later legend is, of course, one of the great cliffhangers of it, that he's actually taken away in a boat to the Isle of Avalon, either to die there or to be healed, and it doesn't actually tell us what happened, so he could actually be still alive somewhere. Where was he buried? Well, he's buried in the Isle of Avalon if he died there, according to the sources from the 12th century onwards, according to those from Geoffrey of Monmouth onwards. And when the Isle of Avalon became identified with Glastonbury from the beginning of the 13th century on, it became increasingly accepted that Glastonbury was Arthur's burial place. A body which was thought to be that of Arthur was found by the monks there in the 1190s. We're now pretty sure that it couldn't have been Arthur because they found him in a bit of the monastery graveyard that didn't date from the right period. But his bones, along those of the woman with whom he was buried, whom they took to be Guinevere, were put into a gorgeous black marble tomb at Glastonbury that was only finally destroyed at the Reformation. They must have reburied the people they thought were Arthur and Guinevere somewhere at Glastonbury then, but we have no idea where. Yeah, I think that ambiguity about his ending has been, has been there, is there in many sources, uh, even in Geoffrey of Monmouth's Chronicle, which is very ambiguous about, about his death. On the one hand, uh, it, the Chronicle claims he is mortally wounded, but then uh, then it goes on to say that he's then carried to Avalon to have his wounds healed. Uh, so how you reconcile those two uh, is difficult to say. Uh, and then certainly amongst uh, the, the Welsh and also uh, uh, other Celtic-speaking areas, uh, they certainly uh, thought that he would one day return, uh, uh, that, that, that he might free them uh, and the Welsh from English from English oppression. So that, that that that's been there for a long time in the Arthurian legend. Okay, and that brings us to the to the last uh, the last question now, which is uh, uh, one we have touched on a little bit uh, so far, but um, but you, you probably have final answers, which is uh, from from two people actually, both on Twitter, MRS Williams, who asks, uh, even though history tells us that King Arthur didn't exist in the way the stories tell us, why have the myths endured for so long? And then uh, Jennifer Brown says, why do you think the stories of Arthur still resonate today? So, um, Ad, what's what's your take on that? Well, I think partly Arthur represents a moment of sort of imaginary greatness of, of Britain, uh, you know, when Britannia ruled the waves and so on. Uh, if you If you wanted to think of a king who conquered uh, who unified not only Britain but went out to conquer most of Europe, then, of course, you have a fine 
uh, you have a fine model there in King Arthur. I think the Arthurian romances offer a, a very different kinds of kind of interest, and it's the taste for adventure, uh, which isn't any, which isn't really to do with, uh, with with prowess or control. It's often to do with with finding your destiny, um, discovering what fate has in store for you, whether an adventure or a chance moment is going to lead you to destiny. Those are different kinds of impulses, but uh, the reason we, we like them is that they obviously answer to a human interest. Thank you. And Ronald, do you want to have the last word? Well, I agree completely with what Adam's just said there, so I need to add something different. I'd say that another appeal of the legend is that there are so many colourful characters involved in it, both female and male, of very different kinds, that they can provide a galaxy of different plot situations and relationships between them. Arthur has so many satellites orbiting him. And even in the Middle Ages, people took different attitudes to the same characters, who could be treated as extremely attractive in some stories and extremely unattractive in others. But also, Arthur is so variable in his own nature. At one extreme, he is the butch hero of the Historia Britonum, who can single-handedly bump off 960 Saxons in one day. At the other extreme, he becomes Tennyson's put-upon wimp. He can be mixed up with the most elevated kind of religion or the most sordid kind of domestic sexual intrigue. He can be a Welsh hero, a British hero, or an English hero, or even, for that matter, a Breton one. Arthur is infinitely malleable, while at the same time retaining the central core of associations, geography, characteristics and companions that give you a sense of a solid tradition. Thank you very much. One last thing from me, actually, just for both of you. Um, we've talked a bit about the film and TV depictions of, of Arthur and the Arthurian stories. Do either of you or both of you have a, a sort of a favourite, any any of those uh, TV and film things that we've talked about that really strike you and you enjoy watching and think give a, a good sense of the period or not? I'm sorry that, David. I'm going to have to disappoint you. I don't like any of the modern films. And whenever I see one, I think, can't they be more faithful to the original like the Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, I've, uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight film that's coming up, I saw a brief clip of it. But the story itself has got all the cinematography that you want. It it it, it was made to be followed more faithfully. Uh, that's my take on it. Uh, sorry about that, David. I'm not one for the modern. Well, I'm the opposite a problem to uh, add, and that is that uh, I pretty well enjoy them all. And so it's hard to pick out a favourite. Uh, I'm very undemanding of modern renditions of traditional stories. So how do I choose between the gloriously messy Merlin and the exquisitely camp Mordred of Borman's Excalibur and the sight of a blue-painted Kira Knightley in a leather bikini in the Brockenheimer? King Arthur. I mean, uh, they're, they're both equally glorious in their own way. How do you put one above or indeed below another? But if I'm going to be sentimental, I would go for the 1970 TV series Arthur uh, of the Britons, which was uh, an almost painfully earnest attempt to put Arthur into a historical, that's an early sixth century concept, and just ended up with Arthur living in an armed hippie camp in the woods, uh, with a, a star taken straight off the cast of Hair, the tribal love rock hippie musical. And simply because I was just the right age to fall for it, I retain what you might call a perverse but profound affection for that. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, I have a penchant for Clive Owen in that uh, Arthur film myself, but uh, but nobody wants to know what I think. Anyway, look, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time there. Uh, professors Ronald Hutton and Ad Passout, we've gone through loads of Arthurian history and legends there, hopefully covered off all the questions that people wanted to know and uh, a very enjoyable conversation. So thank you very much both for your time. My pleasure. A pleasure. That was Ronald Hutton and Ad Putter. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics and historians you'd like us to include in the series. 
You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when I'll be speaking to Isabel Wilkerson about cast in America. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.